Now let's look at the context. As John's writing this gospel, he's collecting uh, the accounts, the historical accounts of what happened in Jesus' life, and he puts them together for a particular reason that we would come to know and believe that Jesus is the Christ. So let's look a bit about the context. At the end of chapter 3, just before this scene, we see John the Baptist and his ministry is taking a turn. Up until Jesus came on the scene fully into his ministry, crowds flocked to hear Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, preach. But John's disciples are noticing an unsettling trend. The ministry was taking a turn for the worse. At least that's how they saw it. Attendance was down because the people were starting to go to listen to Jesus preach and Jesus' disciples started to baptize those folks and the numbers for John the Baptist began to dwindle. And so John's followers were very concerned. But John saw it differently. John was filled with joy. Look at chapter 3, verse 29. He says, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John's saying, I am blessed to be the best man, and I believe Jesus of Galilee is the bridegroom come from heaven. I'm the best man, and I get to introduce the groom to his bride. And so my purpose has been fulfilled, and I am filled with great joy because the groom has come. And so my job is done. That's the context in John's gospel. And as we consider the story of a woman at Jacob's well, think back with me to Sunday school about the scenes in the Old Testament that had to do with a well. Can you think of examples back in the Old Testament where a well played a prominent role in what was happening in the midst of the story? Abraham sends his servant to find a bride for his son Isaac at a well. Rebecca, Genesis 24. And Jacob found his bride Rachel at a well as well. Genesis 28. And where did Moses find his bride? Zipporah, do you remember? Jethro's daughter. Where did he find her? That's right. It was at a well, Exodus 2. Now look with me at verse 23 of chapter 4. Jesus says, The Father is seeking people of spirit and truth to worship him. Could it be that the Apostle John, the writer of this gospel, is setting up this historic account so that we would see and believe Jesus is the bridegroom come from heaven, calling forth his bride? And that this woman is the beginning of the calling of disciples of all the nations that will constitute his bride, the church. Maybe that's the context. I think that's an important insight of what's happening here from chapter 3 into chapter 4. But read it for yourself. This woman is being sought after. This is not a chance 
encounter. Jesus is on his way with his disciples from Judea in the south to Galilee in the north, and between the two laid the land of Samaria. Strict Jews, in order to avoid defilement, bypassed Samaria. It wasn't worth it. They would be personally defiled. They did not like the Samaritans. They had great issues with them, and so they would add two extra days of travel to circumvent this land. If you were a good, faithful, pious Jew. Because the Samaritans were considered a racially mixed group. Part Jewish, part Gentile. And the Jews did not like the Samaritans. In fact, they hated them with a racial prejudice. And the feeling was mutual. But Jesus, being Jesus, he takes the shortcut through the land, and by the time he reaches the, the, the village of Sakar, he's wiped out. The text says, wearied from his journey. He's exhausted. He's extremely thirsty. His disciples have gone off looking for food, and Jesus comes into the court and sits down at the well. Daryl Johnson, uh, a pastor and theologian that was greatly influential in my life, speaks of John's gospel. He says, when you read the gospel of John, wherever you are in the gospel, you can always go back to the prologue, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. You can read everything in context of that, the word made flesh. So the word of God, he was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory full of grace and truth and thirst and tuckered out and sitting down at a well looking for a drink. And Daryl Johnson says, the one who decided two hydrogen and one oxygen element would bond to become water sat at a well. Humanity and divinity. The Word made flesh thirsty. An amazing picture. And sitting at the well, Jesus meets a thirsty woman. But the woman's thirst is different from Jesus' thirst. Jesus' thirst can be quenched by H2O. The woman's cannot. She comes at the sixth hour. That is high noon. The hottest part of the day. And she's all alone. This is when she comes, we could imagine, to the well every day. Because you'd have to refill your jars and your buckets daily from the water supply. And so we can draw some assumptions and conclusions that she must have been some kind of social outcast. Perhaps shamed by her village because... No one goes to get water in the middle of the day. You go either in the early morning hours or late in the afternoon before the sun goes down, number one. And number two, she's venturing out alone. And at that time, and in that culture, and even today, women do not travel alone. So as she approaches the well, she looks up and sees a strange man. She has no idea, no clue who he is, but she'll learn by the end of their conversation. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. 
He's thirsty. He, he's, he's very tired. He doesn't have a bucket to draw the water out of the well. But more than that, he is also bringing this woman to another source of refreshment. Give me a drink. It's brilliant. He's starting the conversation off not with the end goal of saying, I am the Messiah. How would she have reacted if that's what he led with? This guy's crazy. Or he's suffering from a heat stroke or both. No, he, he begins by asking for a favor, empowering her, honoring her dignity. There's something you have that I need. And in so doing, he breaks the social taboos against talking to women. And she probably expects him to either ignore him, or if he looks at her, she's probably expecting he'll look with some judgmental uh, contempt, which is probably something she'd experienced before, uh, a dirty stare. But her, his request catches her off guard. And so she blurts out, how is it that you, a, a Jew, which she must have known by his, his dress, maybe his, his accent, his look, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me, a woman of Samaria? Question number two from our Bible study that, that many of us are going through that will parallel the sermons, and I hope that you will sign up for one of those studies. Very insightful question from the Bible study this week. What barriers is Jesus willing to overcome in order to have a conversation with this Samaritan woman? He's already leapt over the social barrier of a man speaking to a woman. Men did not speak, men did not even speak to their own wives or their own daughters in public in that society. And she points out to this young rabbi that he is breaking religious and racial barriers that date back 500 years when the, the Jews and the Samaritans feud first started. But he's not just speaking to a woman alone in public who happens to be from the wrong side of the tracks. In order for him to take a drink he needs to pick up with his own hands and touch her water container with his hands and his lips. The container that she holds with her own hands and raises to her own lips. Jesus breaks through every barrier to reach people, be it race, religion, social status, what have you, he breaks through to reach people on the outside. Which means anyone who says they want to follow Christ must be willing to do the same. Look at verse 10. Jesus responds to her outrage. He says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Notice, he doesn't answer her loaded questions about history, race, and religion. He goes deeper to what she really needs. She needs living water. He knows she is thirsty for a resource she knows not of. Now in the Old Testament, living water, moving water, not stagnant, but moving living water was a symbol of fulfillment of God's promise to refresh 
his dried out people. Isaiah 12, verse 3. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted. So moving waters, a symbol of fulfillment, and not just a, I feel so fulfilled, but then a proclamation, Isaiah 12, you will go and tell all the peoples of the great name, exalting the name of God. So God's salvation flows out to the peoples through the witness of his people, Israel. The message is his name, who he has revealed, who he is. The thirst-quenching water is God's own spirit. Now, she doesn't understand what he's talking about. She doesn't understand this context. Uh, she's trying to make sense. Are you going to drop a bucket that far? How are you going to get this water? But he's drawing her closer and closer. Look at verse 13. He said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Give me this water. Jesus is drawing her closer and revealing her need to her, revealing her thirst. Give me this water, she says. Ease my pain. Make me feel good again. Make me feel whole. Lift my depression. I want this. What do I need to do to get it? She's so close, and she doesn't quite understand. This gift only comes by repentance and faith. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. Now, why would he do that? This is, this is looking like a really great story, and then Jesus embarrasses her. Why, why bring up such a personal, intimate, that's her private business, Jesus? Uh, you're, she's being embarrassed now. Why bring it up? Why not say, you know what, I, I know that's a sensitive subject. We're not going to go there. And yet he says, bring your husband. So she has to say, I have no husband. Who's she talking to, by the way? She's talking to the bridegroom from heaven. She's looking at the bridegroom from heaven. I have no husband. See the irony there? Great irony. Okay, so she gets that he's a prophet. Now, great, Jesus, you know my big secret. Why bring it up? Well, imagine for just a moment that he hadn't brought it up. Imagine he hadn't brought up, he didn't want to embarrass her, so he leaves that alone. Would she have been able to worship in spirit and truth with this big secret between them? What do you think? I don't think so. I don't think we can come to the Lord in spirit and truth when there are barriers in our own hearts between us and God. Now imagine the days and weeks and months to follow. If this big secret hadn't been dealt with, what would be the mindset of this woman going forward in life? 
Could you imagine her newfound joy in meeting Jesus and, and, and being loved by him and loving him back? That that feeling might start to wane as she thinks, if he knew my big secret, maybe he'd turn off the tap. If he knew my past, maybe I wouldn't be welcomed. I wouldn't receive this living water. So that there's no doubt about his intentions to love her and to save her, Jesus exposes her secret so it can get out there in the open and so it can be dealt with, so they can deal with it together. Jesus is saying to the woman and to any of us here, if you are lingering with some hidden secret that you think I could never tell a living soul, I can't, I can't let go of this secret, he's telling the woman and he's telling you, Know that I really know who you are and that I love you. And I am offering to you the real you living water. He wants to break through whatever barriers are in your life right now. She perceives he's a prophet and she brings up one of the big differences between the Jews and Samaritans as to where they're supposed to worship. Where is the sacred place located? And so Jesus is getting closer. He's getting closer to her. Uh, imagine she's coming up to the, to the very edge of the ocean, or in, in our context, taking her out to Billy Goat Trail, uh, right to the edge of the Potomac, the raging river. And so she's getting afraid, and she's putting up, she's putting up some, some roadblocks. Maybe she's dodging. Maybe she's sincerely asking, where do I find God? And then Jesus finally hands her the cup. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming and has now come. And he tells her salvation doesn't have many headwaters and tributaries, but one source. And Jesus affirms what we've been studying in our long series in Romans, that salvation is from God's people, the Jews. That God has acted decisively in history to save through his grace to the patriarchs and their people. And that all these events climax in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And he says, true worshipers worship the Father in spirit and truth. He's saying this because God is spirit. He is not confined to one particular place and time. What's he saying? He's saying, woman, you can worship God right here, right now. She says, I know the Messiah is coming. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. The Samaritans only use the first five books of the Old Testament for their worship. The, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, that's all they had. They, they rejected the books of prophecy that were filled with the promises of God that gave greater insight into the character and attributes and plan that God had. They only had the words from Moses. And so her concept of Messiah was shaped only by Torah. Moses speaking to Israel, preparing them for his death, uh, in the last book of Torah, Deuteronomy 18, 15, says this, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And so all she knew about God's plan for Messiah was that he's going to look kind of like Moses. At the end of Deuteronomy, it says, 
There has never been another man who speaks for God in Israel like Moses. The Lord knew him face to face. And now Jesus hands her the cup and says, I who speak to you am he. Literally, I am the one. I am he. The very words God spoke to Moses at the burning bush in the desert, Moses is called out and he says to God, whom, whom am I supposed to tell the people? You've called us out. You're going to do this great thing to rescue your people. What should I say that your name is? I am. Tell them I am. Woman, you don't need to go anywhere. I am he. Jesus, the thirsty man. Jesus, the thirst-quenching God-man. Jesus, the Savior. And what difference did it make? It made all the difference in the world. She leaves her water jug and she goes back to tell the people not he answered all my Sunday school questions and not he had great insights about our social, uh, political, and racial concerns. Boy, he's such a wise guy. Maybe we should hire him for city council. No, I want you to meet a man that told me everything about who I am. And the people are so moved by her testimony, they come forth, and you can read on. It says that they met Jesus, they heard his word, and they believed, and they invited him to stay for a few more days. It was through her testimony and through Jesus' ministry, they were saved. And so these Samaritans, outsiders, half-breeds, these outsiders are the first to be invited inside, into the banquet room. They are the first to receive and accept the invitation to the wedding. The kingdom is here. Leslie Newbegin writes in his book, Light Has Come, she came to draw the water that will quench thirst for an hour or two. She returns to the village without the water, Instead, she carries a witness to the water that quenches the thirst of the Spirit forever. Do you have this water? Do you know this living water in your life? If you do, it's filling you up, and it's going to splash and touch the people around you. If there's something blocking it, something you're holding on to, now is the time to say, Lord, release me. Take this away, this big secret this big lie I've been telling myself I want it removed and I want to be a blessing, Lord, not to just receive for my own personal fulfillment, but to be used by you, a conduit filled to the full measure and overflowing with your grace. Let us pray. Lord, we pray, as you said to your disciples, the harvest time is here. You say right after the scene. And so, Lord, we see that same harvest field in our area right now. And we pray, Lord, that we would be the people of God, filled to the full measure and overflowing with your Holy Spirit. It would flow through us and splash and touch all those around us. Lord, bless us that we might be a blessing to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.